Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Daryl Anka, who channels an entity known as Bashar. Well, first of all, welcome, Daryl. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Rick. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. This is going to be fun. Those who've been watching this show for some time know that I have a fairly eclectic understanding uh, or orientation towards spirituality. I feel that the universe is far more vast and diverse and complex and mysterious than most of us realize and that it's all pervaded by divine intelligence and that divine intelligence has a lot of tricks up its sleeve. <laughs> you know, a lot of different ways of enabling people to more fully realize that deep reality. So I don't rule out much of anything as a valid spiritual path and I think that people choose the path toward which they feel the most resonance or affinity and um, I'm, that's cool with me. So I feel that the purpose of this show is to expose people to a variety of uh, teachers and teachings and paths and spiritual orientations and let them use their own judgment as to what works for them. So I say that as a, you know, just a bit of an introduction because I know that some of my audience will think, ah, channeling and aliens and all this stuff, what does that have to do? I'm, I'm into Vedanta. And so I'd say, great, you know, enjoy Vedanta, but, you know, Vedanta isn't the only game in town. And uh, if you happen to resonate with what we're going to talk about today, and I'm sure many of you will, then that's good. And if you don't, then I'll do another one next week on a different topic. <laughs> <laughs> So, Daryl, one thing that when I was listening to your various recordings of Bashar, there's, there's one in which he distinguished between, I believe it was skepticism and cynicism. Yes. Yeah, I like that one. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he defines skepticism as a sort of a healthy, open-minded inquisitiveness in which you're, <laughs> you're free to ask questions that may arise. But, you know, you keep an open mind and you're willing to revise your perspective if new evidence is presented. Whereas yes. cynicism is more like a, a kind of a rigidity or a closed-mindedness where you, yes. feel, you feel like you've got it all figured out and you reject evidence that clashes with your worldview as being kooky or erroneous or fallacious or whatever. So yes. I would, in, by that definition, I would consider myself a skeptic and it, mm -hmm. it's a sort of a complimentary term. And I'll probably be asking some questions that may seem skeptical, but they're asked in all respect and appreciation for what you do. And, oh, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And they may be questions that people that we're talking to have in their own minds. So we want right. to cover them. So with that introduction, I think this interview will probably break down into two main sections and there may be sort of intermixture between the two sections, but one will be about your life, you know, who you are and how you got into this and how that whole thing unfolded. And another is about Bashar himself and, and the, right. the knowledge that he is bringing forth. And so those two are intertwined, but somewhat separate. So let's start, okay. with, let's, let's start with the first one first. As I understand it, you've been doing this for decades now. 30 years. 30 yes. years, yeah, long time. I know you've covered this in other interviews. There was a great interview on something called Waking Universe. I really appreciated yes. that one. That guy did a good job. But since the people listening to this will probably not have listened to that, let's cover some of the same ground and maybe, sure, maybe I'll ask some different questions. So let's yeah. start by just, how did this whole thing start? Well, for me, it began back in 1973. I actually had two very close broad daylight UFO sightings here in Los Angeles. First time about 150 feet away, the second time only about 70 feet away. Both times it was an equilateral black triangular ship about 20-30 feet on a side. 
Now, fortunately, I had witnesses with me both times, so I knew I had some collaboration and, and corroboration in that experience, in both of the experiences. But it was those UFO experiences that started me investigating what's this all about, because now I had seen something like that. I knew that the world wasn't exactly as I was taught it was, and I needed to find out what was going on. So in that investigation in the following years, of course, back then, there weren't a lot of books on a lot of metaphysical subjects. So you kind of walk into a bookstore looking for UFO books and, you know, books on psychic functioning or channeling or things like that would all be on the same one shelf in the back of the store. So I just kind of went down the line and, and picked up on these different books and, and tried to ascertain if one had anything to do with another. I became familiar with channeling through the Seth material from Jane Roberts, and I found um, it to be... Hang on just a second before we proceed. Yeah. About the UFOs. Los yeah. Angeles is a populous place. I mean, yes, it is. Was this broad daylight, did you say? And Both of them were in broad daylight, I yes. Mean, I was on the freeway the first time. We were actually looking around to see if anyone else in any of the other cars where, while we were driving were looking up at this thing. Everyone in my car saw it, but I couldn't tell if anyone else was looking up and seeing this thing. It was hovering just above and out in front of a hotel that was about uh, maybe 12 stories tall. And it didn't make the news or anything? Well, not that I was aware of, although I have subsequently seen more and more reports of triangular UFOs since that time. But I think it took about two or three years after my sighting before I actually heard of another report of a triangular UFO. They seemed to be pretty rare back then. Mm -hmm. Now they seem to be more and more common. Okay. Did you have any spiritual or esoteric tendencies before this, or did that really, was not that the really. catalyst which got you going? That was really the catalyst. I mean, okay. my family had raised me Catholic. You know, I didn't really resonate with the idea of religion in that sense. It was just kind of surreal to me. And so, no, I, I didn't really have any leanings in any particular spiritual direction. But this really ignited my curiosity about what was going on. Okay, good. And so later on, we'll talk a lot more about the UFO phenomenon and how that... Sure. You know, all that. But you were about to talk about your exploration and you mentioned you yeah. stumbled onto the Seth material, Jane Roberts. Yes, yes. And so that, that gave me some degree of introduction to the idea of channeling. And mm -hmm. 10 years after the UFO sighting, I was actually introduced to a channel who was uh, holding seminars at the time. And I went to listen to the information coming through that channel. And after a few months, I thought, you know, this is, it's interesting information. It seems to be constructive and seems to have the capacity to help people make positive and constructive choices in their lives. Now, Eventually, that entity actually offered to teach a channeling class. I went into the class not because I thought I was going to become a channel. I was just trying to further my research because I didn't understand how channeling could be taught to someone. My understanding at that point was it was just sort of something that happened to you out of the blue. But in the class, which was basically a series of guided meditations to put you in touch with whatever you wanted to get in touch with, be it more creativity, your own higher mind or, you know, whatever, I received what I can only describe as a telepathic hit and in that one instant an actual memory came back of having made an agreement to do this channeling with Bashar in this life in that instant I understood the UFO had been shown to me on purpose to get me to start doing the research I was doing so I would be ready by the time it came time to do the channeling and the information in my head was now that you know you made this agreement now you know it's time to begin is this something you would still like to do so this now, is an I, agreement that you made before your birth yes 
Okay. And, and so maybe and that's why maybe the other people on the freeway didn't see the UFO, didn't see you it. know, because it was really meant for you and, and yeah. maybe they couldn't isolate out the other people in your car. In the car. <laughs> and I've and I've heard this happen many times from other people who've reported UFOs is sometimes they'll be standing around a group of people and only one or two people in the group will actually be able to see the UFO. So they may have a way of tuning the frequency to a particular person and making themselves essentially invisible to anyone who's not on that wavelength. Hmm. Maybe the other people in your car were somewhat like-minded, you know, more open-minded kind of higher consciousness kind of people or something. Sure. Well, I mean, like attracts like, you know, yeah, they yeah. Were my sure. brother, my sister, a very, very close friend of mine and her brother. So in a sense, we were all family. Okay, good. So you got this hit, you realized, yes. oh, I, I had made an agreement to do this and continue. Yeah, I mean, for, for a little bit, I thought, okay, you know, maybe I'm hallucinating here. Maybe this is just my imagination. It's a side effect of the meditation we're doing. I don't know. But the instant this actually happened in my head, the entity coming through the teacher stopped talking to the class and turned to me and said, there is an entity here for you now if you're ready to begin. And at the same moment, I glanced over and noticed that one of the other classmates was actually had also somehow picked up on this peripherally what was going on and was actually sketching an image of Bashar that I had seen in my head. Wow. So I already had two external validations that this wasn't just going on inside me. So for that reason, I decided, all right, let's explore this. Let's see what this is all about. Okay. So I, I went further in the class. I did well enough that the teacher actually asked me to co-channel the next class with him. And after that class, I was introduced to a woman who was doing the first doctoral thesis on the connection between psychology and channeling. And I became one of her subjects and started channeling at her house for her friends while she wrote notes to write her paper. But the first week it was like, you know, five friends. Then the second week it was 20. And the third week it was 40. And it's like we had to start doing it twice a week and then <laughs> renting auditoriums. And then people would pass the recordings around. And before you know it, I was being invited to different cities, different countries. And, and it just took on a life of its own. And here I am 30 years later. Now, I heard you say that you pretty much don't remember or while it's happening, you're not very cognizant of what's going on. It's like a, a kind of a, you're off in some daydream day or something. Yeah, I don't hear the words so much. It's kind of like if you're really lost in a daydream mm -hmm. and somebody walks in the room and tries to get your attention and they have to call your name three times before you actually hear them. Happens all the time with my wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like that. It's like the conversation might as well be in the house next door. It's yeah. so secondary and so far away i'm paying attention to what i'm experiencing which is a lot of energy a lot of imagery a lot of feeling but i'm having my own experience and on whatever's going on with the translation in my brain for the person sitting in front of me it really in a sense is none of my business hmm. so i just don't pay attention to it seems like it that happens to different degrees with different channels like edgar casey yes. as i understand it was really checked out you know yes some other channels they they had to the house is on fire or something. Hey, the house is on fire. They'd, they'd get right up and jump. Right. You know, it's, I don't know, maybe it's just you're wired in different ways. Yeah, but I've also noticed in talking to other channels and observing other channels, I've noticed mm -hmm. a progression, let's say generationally. I think we're becoming, those that choose to channel in this way are becoming more and more involved. So it's like, I'm conscious. I know there's something going on and I could probably stop it if I wanted to. Mm -hmm but I just don't choose to stop it. But I'm more conscious and more aware than I think like people like you're mentioning, like Edgar Casey or Jane Roberts were, because I think right. it's important for the channel to now know, at least to some degree, to participate to some degree in what's happening, because 
the change is also the information coming through is also to be applied to yourself as well as the people that you're talking to. So I think that more you're going to see more and more and more involvement in a conscious way. Mm -hmm. And as I become, let's say, more my own version of Bashar by just simply using the information that he brings through, then I can kind of tap into my own higher mind and I don't have to go into the altered state at all to bring a lot of the information through myself at this point. So I think that's part of the of the idea is that we become more conscious and still are capable of tapping into that level of reality and bringing through what we need. It seems like some channelers, well, you in particular, you adopt a very different voice while you're doing it. Um, it just in fact, I, I do a happens. pretty good uh, imitation of it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, here's the, here's the irony. I actually can't imitate that voice. Uh, I, I have trouble imitating it. But it's something that just absolutely happened naturally. The breathing that you hear happened naturally by going yeah. into the altered state. The voice changes and the uh, energy changes happen just as a side effect of going into that state and allowing his personality to uh, be translated through me. One of the things... We can, I don't know, we'll touch on this later, but we're right now we're actually in the middle. I mean, my other life is I'm in the film business, and right now we're making a documentary about how I became a channel and mm -hmm. who Bashar is. One of the things I'm most excited about in this documentary is I actually did a channeling session with my head wired to an EEG machine. Mm -hmm. So for the first time, we're going to actually be able to demonstrate physically what are the differences going on in the human brain in the normal waking state and in the channeling state and without giving a lot of stuff away right now i will definitely say people are going to see for the first time that there are profound differences between the two states and for the first time i think we're going to be showing some scientific evidence that this is truly a real altered state not that anyone has to believe that bashar is real but that the channeling state is a true altered state that we all actually have the ability to get into and that a lot of us actually do get into from time to time when we're in that zone or doing what we love to do where we're just doing it we're not thinking about it we don't notice the passage of time that's a channeling state and we all do that so for the first time i think the documentary is actually going to show the scientific side of what's happening in the brain in that state so we're really excited about that yeah that's interesting and of course a lot of that kind of research has been done with meditation and they've identified yes. that meditation evokes a really distinct state which can't yes. be it's not just some minor modification of waking state it's a, a major state as waking dreaming and sleeping are distinct from one another yes yeah, so there's some similarities we discovered to mm -hmm. the meditation state but there are also some profound differences that are in addition to um, the meditation state and when you say we all channel from time to time perhaps mm -hmm. without even knowing it i'm wondering if like well like you're channeling someone whom you say is actually a future version of yourself bashar that's, is some yes, that's and, the way he presents himself and yeah. that's something we can get into later in more detail sure. also that time is not so linear as we think and that right you know, we'll get into that but then how about great geniuses like mozart beethoven einstein yeah do you think they were channeling yes they're in a channeling state it's really just expressing more of yourself, more connectivity, more accessibility to knowledge which exists throughout creation. It's just knowing that everything exists in the moment and tapping into that present moment so strongly that you can just bring through what you need to bring through without even really thinking about it. Yeah, and there's the ancient idea of a muse, you know, who inspires mm -hmm. a great musician or artist or something. So do you think that these guys like Einstein and so on, 
were just tapping into their own, a deeper aspect of their own creativity? Or do you think that some higher being or power want, said, okay, it's time for humanity to know about relativity, and here's a good candidate. This guy's smart enough. Let's, let's bring it in through well, him. Well, it could be both. It could be both. And in a sense, I feel it, it sort of has to be both. Information permeates existence itself, and whether another entity is involved in helping deliver it, the person receiving it still has to be on the right wavelength, still has to be in the right state of being or the right vibrational frequency to receive it. So I think it's got to be a two-way street. You've got to be able to tap in and be open to receiving whatever it is that's available to be received, whether someone is intentionally sending it to you or not, or whether you're reaching out and getting it, to me, is just sort of an issue of what mechanism is being used, but yeah. you still have to be in the right state to be able to translate it through. Not only the right state, but you also have the right, have to have the right education. I mean, Mozart knew about music, and yes. so therefore he could channel these beautiful things. Or Einstein yeah. knew about mathematics and so on. Exactly. Well, one of the things I've noticed in my life early on, uh, and one of the things that people often say when they hear the channeling, is that I have, I, I guess, <laughs> Uh, a relatively large vocabulary so that Bashar can really translate a lot of what he's saying into the necessary words. And I've noticed that in my life growing up, it was kind of one of the things that happened for me automatically. My parents said that I was reading like magazines when I was a year and a half old. And English in school for me was never a problem. I never understood why people couldn't understand punctuation, grammar, vocabulary, you know, and things like that. So I think it was now in hindsight, I needed to program myself with a large enough vocabulary so that very esoteric concepts and ideas could translate through me into language we would understand. So yeah, I think there is a lot of preparation involved in these things, but a lot of times it just sort of happens in your life or you gravitate to that thing to give you the tools you need to be able to function on that level or translate those concepts at some point in the future, yeah. Yeah, and obviously you wouldn't be a very useful channel in Brazil or uh, no. <laughs> some speaking in Afrikaans or something like that. Bashar, if he wanted to talk to those people, is going to probably have to go through somebody who speaks Portuguese. Or... Yeah, because that's a common misunderstanding people have about the idea of channeling is it's not that it's impossible for an entity to sort of override the consciousness of the channel's programming and sometimes actually be capable of pulling another language through, but it's really not what's easiest for the channel's brain because the channel has been programmed with a particular language and therefore yes you're right in some senses it's easier for the entity to actually go through a person who's already programmed with a different language and I've actually seen that happen with Bashar at one point many many years ago while he was helping someone else learn how to channel he was acting as a mentor for them temporarily and allowing them to bring him through just temporarily until they could get a handle on what channeling was and then channel their own entity um, he actually came through a woman in Japan uh, and therefore he was speaking through a female in Japanese, but it was still distinctly his personality, his cadence, his style, his mannerisms. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a very odd thing for me to experience personally. But yeah, most people have a misunderstanding because see, he's not speaking anything at all. He's just sending thoughts. The thoughts are being translated by the biological translator that we happen to be. And I'm programmed with English. So that's what you get. Yeah. How about on the dark side? I mean, were guys like Hitler and Pol Pot and Idi Amin and Charles Manson channeling something or what? Well, I suppose you could say they were channeling their negative egos or their fear-based egos. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of channeling 
is something that by definition is integrative and connective and expansive and things that are perceived more negatively are segregative and disconnective and reductive and destructive. So the idea is not so much to say that they might have been quote unquote channeling in the sense of an integrated positive expanding mechanical concept, but that perhaps they were experiencing so much disconnection and fear-based belief systems that they were simply bringing through more and more of their own negative ego without actually really being able to express a connection to a higher source. Well, I guess maybe to rephrase the question, are there negative forces in the universe who would like to use men like them as means or, or channels to bring about negative impacts on humanity. It's, it's possible. I, I, you know, the universe is both positive and negative, and I'm sure there are entities out there somewhere that don't necessarily have anyone's best intention at heart. But the thing I'm saying is the person has to already kind of be gravitating to that wavelength to attract something like that. And the idea, again, is that negative energy by definition is segregative instead of connective. So even though they might be aligning with a negative entity or a negative entity might be aligning with someone on earth that is negatively oriented, there's not much connection because connection by definition is positive. So to align with something like that is probably very difficult. And I think when people talk about things like possession and, you know, is a negative entity taking someone over, to me, it's really simply more a matter in terms of speaking as it as if it was physics it's more a matter of the person based on their own negative belief systems is putting themselves in a negative vibrational frequency and by doing so they may be emulating another negative frequency that might have a similar negative intention but it's not like they can really be controlled or possessed it's simply that for whatever reason their belief system is getting them to agree to function on that same low vibrational wavelength and so they're emulating or mirroring what another negative entity might also want to do but they're doing it themselves and they're totally in control of that and if they changed their mind about being on that wavelength they would sever that experience in an instant but their belief system doesn't allow them to do so. Okay, so you're saying that a negative person like Hitler, for instance, is not the mirror opposite, the polar opposite of somebody who is channeling a lot of positivity and wisdom and knowledge and so on. He's more mired in his egotism and his uh, has just assumed some kind of role and has some kind of charismatic personality that yes. enables a lot of people to get all enthusiastic and, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fear-based belief system. It's, it's a, a belief system based on limitation, on lack, on fear. The negative definitions that you're, definitions that you're, you're somehow disconnected from source. And that if you feel like you're disconnected from source, then the ego sort of goes into this negative space where it feels like it has to now control everything and manipulate everything in order to feel the power that it doesn't allow itself to feel because it believes it's disconnected. Mm -hmm. People that are connected to source that know that they are connected, it's not that anyone can actually be disconnected, but you can have a belief that you're disconnected. And if you believe you are, it's like being abandoned. It's like being isolated. Well, <clears throat> you're gonna try to do everything in your power to try and find that connection again. But if you don't understand that the power is within you, you're going to assume that it's out there and you're going to try to manipulate your reality and manipulate other people and force yourself on them in order to construct a reality that you feel is making you feel powerful or comfortable. 
But really, anytime anyone forces something on anyone else, it's just a sign that they don't really feel their power at all, and they're trying to make up for it in some sort of artificial way. Great power, as Bashar said, really requires the very gentlest touch. So anytime someone is forcing something on someone, what they're actually saying is they don't believe that they have self-empowerment. Just to belabor this point a little bit more, from what I'm gathering, you, you would probably say that what we see in terms of humanity, all mm -hmm. the dramas that have played out over the hundreds and thousands of years, is not necessarily a surface manifestation of a tug of war between positive and negative forces, sort of like no. Star, Star Wars. The negative forces, at least in the examples I mentioned, are just uh, manifestations of human ignorance and ego. And the positive, but the positive forces you seem to be saying could actually be a channeling of some higher intelligences. Which well, what I'm, what I'm saying is that creation has both positive and negative energy in it. And so in that sense, you could say, yes, of course, there are positive and negative forces based on what beings choose to align themselves with. But what I'm saying is the expression of positive or negative has to do with what an individual based on their belief systems, chooses to align with. Sure. So if they are in fear-based belief system, they're going to align with the negative side of reality and express mm -hmm. it through themselves. If they're in positive-based belief systems, they're going to align with the positive side of reality and express that through themselves. So basically, I'm still saying it comes down to the fact that individuals have a choice as to what to align with, and it's not necessarily even that the so-called positive and negative forces on a very basic physics level even necessarily have an agenda. It's just that this is what positive energy is, this is what negative energy is, and if you align with one or the other, you're going to express what is relevant and reflective of that energy through yourself. Yeah. So the real battle is really just taking place within yourself more than the idea that the battle is taking place out there somewhere. because. Creation contains both sides, and it's not that it's battling with itself, but depending on what you lock into, the expression of love or the expression of fear can be personified through any particular individual based on what they align with. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just in, in uh, mythology and, and you know, historic scriptural accounts, especially mm -hmm. in the East, there's so many accounts of the gods and the demons battling it out, you know, sure. and... Sure, but I'm saying I think that's symbolic of what's going on within us. It doesn't mean that consciousness can't express itself archetypally in a seemingly external, autonomous being. Mm -hmm. It can, but I think that we only perceive that and experience that when we're on that vibrational wavelength first. Right. Yeah, that's good enough. And, yeah. and we, we align ourselves with one or another's yes. tendencies in creation according to our proclivities, according to our choice, according to our makeup. And Sure. Our karma, whatever. Sure. So you'll, you'll get the experience you're on the wavelength of. So, you know, anyone who's in that fear-based belief system is going to experience an archetypal, autonomous, demonic reflection that because everything is conscious and made of consciousness, of course, will have its own consciousness and will present itself as an external entity with this agenda, but it's actually activated by someone simply choosing to be on that wavelength and then seeing the reality and experiencing the reality that they're on the wavelength of. Okay, good. One other thing, just looping back a little bit, I get the impression that some channelers are very drained and it even takes a toll on their health uh, to do it. I think Jane Roberts might have been a case in point 
Whereas in your case, you've found it nothing but energizing and enlivening, and yes. it's really en enriched and enhanced your, your personal life as, yeah. as Daryl. For the first couple of years, it was tiring, mm -hmm. but I think what happens is it takes a while for a person to get used to the level of energy that is coming through when you make a connection like that to mm -hmm. a higher plane entity. And so at first, there might be resistance within the person, and that resistance to that energy is, I think, what causes the exhaustion. Mm -hmm. But if you open up, eventually, ideally, I think the idea is to relax and trust it and open up enough so that when you really let that energy through without resistance, then it, you find that it actually does start to sustain, support, and energize you. So if people are only experiencing the idea of exhaustion and being drained by it, that might be an indicator. I'm not going to say in every case because I can't speak for everyone because everyone has their own path, but it might in general be an indication that perhaps more work needs to be done internally to let go of any negative belief in there that might be causing a resistance to that higher frequency and therefore the channel working on themselves a little bit more might ease the resistance to that energy and allow them to experience it in a much more positive and sustaining and uplifting way. And perhaps not even just belief, but neurophysiological wiring, you know, might sure. might need to be kind of rearranged a bit before you can really do it without obstruction. And well, it goes hand in hand. I think that anytime you change your belief system, you actually do change your neurological wiring yeah. and it becomes more reflective of the fact that you can handle more energy. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons, again, why you see me go into the altered state and you hear the breathing and, and things like that change is I think you're actually seeing a physiological reflection of the different neurological state that the body's going into to be able to sustain that energy without causing uh, a detriment to me. Yeah. You're probably familiar with some people who have been on television, like Teresa Caputo, you know, the Long mm -hmm. Island Medium, and mm -hmm. J James Ron Prague, and sure. three or four others that have... You know, uh, John Edward. John Edward. Do you consider what they are doing channeling? Because uh, they don't yes, really seem to sense. check out at all. They seem to be all there, and they just say, no. oh, I'm picking up something here, and I'm talking that's, to your, your mother. Or... Yes, and that's, that's typically the form of channeling that is referred to as mediumship. Right. They're acting as a conscious medium. They're sort of hearing or picking up on symbols in their own consciousness that are translations of what a spirit entity might be sending and they're just translating it through to you as a medium. In a sense, it is a form of channeling. I, it's just maybe a different form of channeling. But I think also they do represent what I was saying earlier is kind of where channeling might be heading in general because the idea is not necessarily to check out. The idea is to sort of participate, but do so in a way where you know you're not, let's say, filtering or interfering with the information. Yeah. So I think more we're going to see more and more examples of people remaining relatively conscious while at the same time developing the ability to tap into those things and still participate while they're delivering the information without really putting their own filters on it. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's a form of channeling. Um, and I guess you could say channeling is a form of mediumship. It's just kind of different styles of the, of the same idea. Might it be the case that if someone like Teresa Caputo is just connecting with somebody's mother, that that entity, the mother, is not so dissimilar from her and from the people she's conveying it to that she doesn't really have to go into a deep kind of disassociated state. Whereas if you're oh, if possibly. you're if you're channeling some kind of alien from the future, maybe that that life form is so different that you really got to sort of maybe I don't know. I mean, it, that could be the case 
for me personally, mm -hmm. uh, again, based on maybe the belief systems I was raised. And it just might be easier for me to go into a state that way to allow something so that I consider to be so different to come through more easily. Um, I don't think that means you, it has to be done that way, but that just may be the way it works for me. Okay. I, I bet you some people have asked you, and, and I'll, I'll ask you this in case it's on people's minds. You know, when you first began dealing with this stuff, you know, you thought, whoa, what is going on? And you began reading a lot of spiritual books, and you, you probably immersed yourself and read yes. a, a ton of them. Does Bashar say stuff that you couldn't and didn't, couldn't have learned and didn't learn in reading? I mean, does he surprise you with things oh, he comes yes. out with, which you never even heard of before, and all of a sudden yes. this thing is coming out? Yeah, all the time. There are people who have spoken to him who are very well-trained psychologists, people who have spoken to him who are physicists, and they've walked away happy with the information that he's given them that I wouldn't have a clue how to give them. Okay. So, yes, there are definitely perspectives, ideas, concepts that he's come through with that are beyond anything that I've ever studied. Yeah, that, that does happen. Okay. We alluded earlier to the fact that you say that um, Bashar is actually a future, it's you, in, in, in the future. Yeah, how how far future are we talking about here? Well, it, <laughs> here's where we get into some bizarre temporal mechanics. Uh -huh. Because from Bashar's perspective, everything really does exist at the same time, but he understands we're perceiving things a little bit more linearly. So he's expressing this in a linear fashion in the way we think of time. He's saying that he would be considered about 300 years in our future. Oh, that's however, however, mm -hmm. He's also saying that because he exists in a parallel reality, a, another alternate dimension, his reality vibrates, for lack of a better term, 10 times faster than ours. Mm -hmm. So evolutionarily, they're actually 3,000 years ahead of us. Oh, I see. In their civilization. But in terms of how we would relate to them, in our linear sense, he says we would think of them as about 300 years in the future. Yeah, even if he weren't you, there are civilizations, I believe, that are functioning on different levels or, or dimensions that are we would consider to be thousands of years ahead of ours. You know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, does he ever tell you how, how things have turned out? How, you know, what's, what's happening with uh, climate change? Um, well, see, you know? this is where I'm saying things get a little bit odd in temporal mechanics because yeah. he's saying there's no such thing as a prediction of the future. There are an infinite number of probable future realities and depending on the decisions we make in the present, mm -hmm. then it determines which future probable reality we choose to experience. But they all exist at the same time. Now, he can sometimes look at the energy that exists right now, which is basically what he's saying a prediction is. It's not a prediction of the future. It's a sensing of the energy that exists at the moment the prediction is made. Mm -hmm. And if that energy doesn't change course, then it might have a high degree of probability of coming to pass. If it does change course, then of course another probability will come up. So that's always in fluctuation. He has from time to time on very rare occasions said, all right, I'm sensing right now that there's something going on in your collective society that has so much energy and so much momentum behind it for one reason or another that it seems unlikely that it's going to change. But this happens very rarely. It has to have a lot of momentum and a lot of energy behind it. One of the ones I can point to is I know that there is actually a recording that exists that was made at a session, I think in 1998, where he did say that somewhere around the year 2001, there would be a terrorist attack in New York City. Mm -hmm. 
that came to pass. Right. So the only reason that that was possible to be made by him as a prediction is for some reason when he scanned all the different probable timelines it seemed relatively inevitable that we were heading down that path somehow and so he felt it was unlikely to go into any other probable future reality so that's kind of how it works for them there are some other generalities that he said yes i can see this is has a high degree of probability of coming to pass, but he'll never say this is an absolute. Because once you actually let someone know where the energy is going, we could decide to change it. So in a sense, a prediction can actually make itself obsolete just by becoming known. Yeah. And there's all those sci-fi movies about, you know, going back and changing something in the past and, you know, your, your parents aren't born as a result. Yeah. Of uh, from kind of... Bashar's perspective, it doesn't really work like that. Uh -huh. It's more along the lines, I think, now he's saying of what our physicists are looking at when they talk about the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics. Mm. Everything exists as a parallel reality and you can't actually go back into your own past. You might shift over into a parallel reality that looks like your past and meet a version of yourself that looks like your younger self, but whatever it is you're doing in that reality is another reality and has nothing to do with your timeline. Hmm. So would it be true to say, uh, based on that point, that you and I are living parallel lives in other parallel universes that are similar to the ones we're living, but a little bit different or very in certain different. respects? Yes, or very different. It can, it can run the entire gamut, according to Bashar. You can, you can uh, experience or perceive a parallel reality version of yourself that is almost indistinguishable from what you're experiencing, and you can perceive a parallel reality version that's so different you almost probably wouldn't recognize it. Hmm. Interesting. So maybe in one... Everything in between. One parallel universe, I'm just wearing a different shirt. And in another, right. I'm a professional baseball player or something. Right, and in another, you may be another life form altogether. Huh. Interesting. Okay, so just um, before we lose the point you are just talking about, it sounds like you're saying that there are all these probabilities and yes. the future is malleable, the present is malleable, and that there are certain probabilities which have a lot more uh, momentum behind them and others which are probably less probable. Yes. And, uh, but it's, it's not cut in stone and it's not predetermined and there is, you would say, I suppose, that we do have free will. I mean, general, some spiritual teachers say we don't have free will. But well, I think know. it's a combination. I mean, you can look at it really kind of paradoxically from almost any point of view and be correct. Bashar has recently talked about the fact that, well, okay, here's one level of it. You can say that, linearly speaking, before this life, your soul decided to experience a certain thing, to explore a certain theme. You could say that's your destiny. Yeah. You will live this Like you life. signed up to do the Bashar thing. Yeah. Right. But how you do it, how you get there, how you experience it, the way you go about it, that's up to your free will. It's, it's up to what you prefer, how you feel best doing it. So it's like saying, well, you'll walk down this hallway. That you can't avoid. But you can run down the hall. You can walk backwards, upside down, left, right, slow, fast, wearing this, wearing that, singing a song, being upset. How you do it is your free will, up to you. But you will walk down that hallway. Yeah. So he's saying in, from that perspective, there's a combination of the idea of destiny and free will working hand in hand to create your experience. On another level, he's saying you could look at it and say, well, you are your destiny. In this particular theme, you can't be anything but you. 
Therefore, that's your destiny. How you choose to express who you are, again, can come into the idea of free will, but it's still always going to be you expressing that and therefore you could say now you're sort of fuzzing the borders between free will and destiny because you can't express yourself as anything other than you so now they become a little bit more blended on the third level he's saying you could also look at it as the idea of well let's say for example you come to a crossroad and you go well i i can have a choice of turning left or i have a choice of turning right now you say, well, okay, my destiny is to come to this crossroad, but my free will is to turn, is to choose to turn right or to choose to turn left. Well, he's also saying, well, how do you really know that? You could choose right, and how do you know that wasn't your destiny? And then you could change your mind and say, no, 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 I'm not going to go here. I'm going to choose left. Well, how do you know that wasn't your destiny? So ultimately what he's saying is it, it's kind of a moot point because from this level, you can't really tell whether it's free will or destiny. So it can be either, it can be both, and it can be neither. Hmm. It's really just about the experience that you are, and that experience informs you, and you do what you do, and it almost doesn't matter whether it's free will or destiny, because the ultimate outcome is the same. You're having an experience that adds to the expansion of your understanding of who and what you are as a conscious being, and that's really the bottom line. And it doesn't really matter what mechanism you're using, destiny or free will, to achieve that. Would it be uh, true to say then that you know, we have a certain destiny, but we, most of us appear or perceive ourselves as having some wiggle room, some, le some latitude in which to right. choose this or that. And it may be that from some ultimate perspective, it is all predetermined and there isn't any free will. But as long as you perceive yourself as having free will, then it does, it's not helpful to sort of philosophically play with the notion that it's all predetermined because you yeah. perceive yourself as having free will and you're responsible exactly. to exercise it intelligently as best you can. And that's the experience you're having. See, I think what Bashar is basically saying is the structure of existence never changes. That's predetermined but your experience of the structure is what changes, and that's the idea of your free will, is you can experience the structure, the destiny, from any perspective you want to, and as an experience, it's real, but it may not necessarily be representative of the fact that the structure already exists and never changes. So you're using a structure to create different real experiences of that structure, and it's the experience that matters because that's what creates change. That's what creates growth. That's what creates a difference of perspective, whereas the structure never changes. So it's kind of both in one, and it's the experience that really matters. It's the process that's the point. Yeah, good. At this point, I want to interject a few questions that people sent in sure. that are kind of related to what we're talking about. One person asked, I'd like to know if Daryl activated his Merkaba, and you're going to have to define that because I don't even know what it is, before he became a channel, after or if it was always activated. Bashar comes to and through him to give channeled information. Does he ever travel to Bashar? And if so, what happens? Is that all one question? I guess that's two questions from the same person. So maybe the Merkaba one first. Okay, a Merkaba in general by a lot of people is sort of considered an energy matrix. Mm -hmm that is representative of a certain state of alignment that allows one to express more of your full being into this reality? How to answer that question? I think looking at it from that perspective, because in a sense a Merkaba is just a translation of an idea, 
it's a permission slip, as Bashar says. It's, it's a way of looking at a process, not necessarily an absolute description of the structure of existence, but it's, it may be a way of interpreting the structure of creation or existence. And in that sense, yes, of course, I think the so-called configuration of my theme, if you want to refer to that as a Merkaba, was always there from birth. But certainly it was activated by several incidents in my life. And one of them, of course, the, one of the strongest ones being the, the UFO incident itself that may have activated my ability to bring through what was relevant to that particular matrix or structure you're calling a Merkaba. I have had experiences with Bashar in dream time directly. The only thing I've ever experienced directly in physical reality is the ship twice, his ship. But I've had about four dream experiences where I've either gone to his reality or we've had conversations all night long in some sort of other alternate dimension mm -hmm. that I know are not just normal dreams because that's all that's happening is I'm talking to him like I'm talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. And certain things happen in that dream state that are very unusual. So I guess in that sense, yes, you could say there are times when I've gone to him, but it usually happens when I'm asleep, at least so far. Okay, so that answered both questions. So this ship you saw back in Los Angeles and many mm -hmm. years ago, that was Bashar's ship? Yes. Okay, and was it just a sort of a uh, interdimensional kind of ship that w came up yes. from some other dimension, or did it actually come from another physical planet someplace that we could see through a telescope? Well, it, it can do both. It can do both. Now, Does now, he have a home planet, or is yes, this Yes, they this have it? a home planet. Yes, okay. they have a home planet, but of course, as I said, it's in a it's in an alternate reality, mm -hmm. so we can't actually see it unless we shift to that dimension. Right. In the same way, they can't really perceive our reality as physical unless they shift into our dimension. But if we were to overlap our reality with their reality, his star system would be about 500 light years in the direction of the Orion constellation. Mm. But again, it's invisible to us unless we shift into their physical reality. But yes, they do have a home planet. That's interesting. So, so the universe that we see through the Hubble telescope or whatever is just, we're just seeing one, like a, a layer yes. of the cake. It's just one dimension. Exactly. Yes. And if we had a telescope that could, you know, not only see far away, but could shift dimensions, we would see whole different configurations of stars yes. and galaxies and planets on those other dimensions. Yeah, in, in much the same way that here we have a visible spectrum of light and we can't really with our eyes perceive infrared or ultraviolet light, but we have instruments that can do that for us and allow us to peer at something that our senses can't naturally pick up. So yeah. yes, Bashar's people have the ability to do that naturally. They've developed and evolved to the point where they can perceive other dimensions with their own actual senses. And that's one of the reasons why he can make connections to his past self, which is me, because for them, time and space is not as rigid or fixed as it is at this point for us. But we're evolving to a point where we're gaining the same kind of flexibility that his civilization already experiences. You know how astrophysicists talk about that maybe 96% of the apparent matter and energy in the universe is invisible, dark energy, yes. dark matter, and, and they can't account for the way the universe behaves yes. based upon just what we can see vis yes. with our eyes. There's all this mass that somehow causes gravitational effects that is, they call dark matter. So mm -hmm. is that mass actually related to these other dimensions of the universe that you're just referring to? It may be, but what I'm actually referring to is something that would look similar to our own 
universal reality, perhaps with its own matter, its own dark matter, its own dark energy, but it's just in a different vibrational state. It Perhaps a better analogy would be the idea that Bashar often uses, which is like our TV programs. When you're watching a particular program on TV, you know there are hundreds of other programs that are playing at the same time, but you don't perceive them because you're not on that channel. Mm -hmm. But if you switch channels, then you're perceiving a completely different program in much the same way as the program you were just watching, but now you're no longer perceiving the one you were looking at before, but it's still going on. So it's more like that. Each is its own real reality, its own real universe, but they're on different frequencies, and so they interpenetrate and overlap but we only see the universe that we happen to be tuned to. Yeah, and all the channels that you're getting on your satellite dish or your cable, they're actually all coming in at once, yes. uh, and they're not conflicting with each other. It's exactly. just that your tuner is, is selecting a particular one or another. Right. So I think that's how dimensions function. Mm -hmm. They're all real. They're all existing at the same time. They're all overlapping all at once, but we have a very, very fine-tuned frequency that is relevant for this particular reality experience. And we need to expand our ability as become a broader spectrum antenna, so to speak, before we can really start picking up on these other realities. Now, I think that we do that sometimes, from time to time, inadvertently. And this is where people have experiences of other dimensions, of other realities, the spirit realm, what have you, is that sometimes our antenna might get a little bit more broad-based for one reason or another, and we start perceiving things that are going on at the same time, and we get kind of a double exposure of the two different or three or four different realities that do exist simultaneously. So it does happen from time to time, but for the most part, let's say 99% of the time, we're focused in basically one particular frequency of a reality because that's what we wanted to experience. So would it be kind of simplistic or misguided to try to map the topography of one reality to another? To say, let's say, that if you could shift to a different dimension, there might be another planet between here and the moon or something. Right. Are, are they really just so, so much in their own realms that it's not sensible or practical or meaningful to try to kind of it depends. see how they it, match up or compare? It depends. It depends. It depends on whether or not that's relevant for the person doing that kind of exploration or that kind of research. It might be very relevant for certain people, and maybe this is in some senses what, to use, let's say, uh, a general term, what some you know, shamans or enlightened masters are able to do is it's more relevant for them, they've made it more relevant in their lives, to be able to perceive things that in general others don't. And therefore, they can give you that. It's like, if you tune this way, you'll see this. This is what I'm seeing. Yeah. But it may not be relevant for everyone, again, because most people have a particular theme they're exploring, and certain things may not necessarily be completely relevant for them to explore in that life, but it may be very relevant for other people. I have a few friends who, well, maybe quite a few, but several <laughs> close friends who who do perceive these other realities routinely. They see angels right. and stuff like that all the time. Right. And they see them attending to people. Like, you know, you right. might be at a, a, in a restaurant and you can see, okay, these subtle beings are attending to these people at this table or something. So yeah. there does seem to be a, at least in the case of those beings, there does seem to be an interface or an yes. inter interconnection between their reality and ours and they're serving yes. some function in our reality. Yeah, and I think this is happening more and more. I mean, I think this is actually part of what this transformational age is all about. We're developing more ability to perceive what we heretofore could not perceive, and that's a reflection of the expansion of our consciousness, and I think that's one of the things that's going on in this age of transformation. Good. 
Here is another question that somebody sent in. We kind of covered this, but I think there's something new here. Daryl has said that Bashar is him in the future, and Bashar lives on another planet. Does Daryl feel that he is a starseed in that he usually carries out his incarnations on other planets and comes to Earth for specific tasks at specific times? That's the the question. (laughs) Well, I suppose I... (laughs) You can pass on some of these questions if you feel like that's okay. I suppose I could say of that from a, a specific perspective, the answer to all of that could be yes. But again, because Bashar has explained that time is not really linear, that everything exists all at once, I wouldn't necessarily put it in the same framework. Let's just say I know that like a lot of people, there are probably incarnations going on simultaneously in other civilizations that I'm connected to. There are probably other incarnations going on on Earth in different time frames that I'm connected to. And some of those lives in both areas probably serve certain functions that have to do with the transformations going on here on the planet, and some of them probably don't. So I would say maybe the best answer is all of the above. Okay, good. Here's another one. I'm in a similar boat, or perhaps spaceship is a better term. Someone wrote this. I've found that experiencing life on different dimensions, including knowing something about the jobs I do elsewhere, has completely erased any doubt about what happens after we leave this incarnation, not to mention it puts this incarnation in perspective. That's yes. more of a statement than a question. but yeah, and I would agree with it. Yeah, okay. I would agree with it. Some people, that works for some people. Uh, some people don't need to do that. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. It's just, again, it comes down to what theme someone is exploring. There are people that don't want to know anything <laughs> about their connections to other realities, other lives, what have you. They get along just fine because they need that focus. Other people, it's part of the expansion to be aware of these things, and I agree that it can put this particular experience in a different perspective that can be very expanding and very helpful for people. So that is sort of the same spaceship that I'm in, and so in that sense, uh, I find a lot of familiarity with that statement. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, personally, I, I find it very, even if I'm not experiencing all this stuff, I find it very gratifying to realize that there's far more to the universe than what sure. meets our mundane senses. You know, there's a, right. it's thrilling, it's exciting. It's, 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 it is. Yeah, it's, it is. It's a much bigger reality than we think. Yeah. And it also perhaps roots out the tendency to, think, to say, it's only this. You know, if, if anybody ever uses the word only or just in a sentence about reality, you, right. re, you realize they're, they're kind of locked into a sure. bit of a rigid view. Yeah, and that's okay if that's what they need, but there is more to it than that. There's a line from the Incredible String Band, whom you're probably too young to remember, but it was, whatever you think, it's more than that. (laughs) I may be older than you think. (laughs) Can't tell with that bald head, you know. (laughs) Okay, let's shift a little bit more. We've we've sort of been weaving around here, but let's let's shift a bit more from the Daryl story to the essence and and some of the details of what Bashar actually teaches. Sure. If, you, if you had to sum it up in a nutshell, you know, the, the elevator ride version of what Bashar is actually here to convey, what would it be? Basically, the thing that I love about Bashar's information is he takes a lot of metaphysical concepts and he really, no pun intended, brings them down to earth with very pragmatic and practical understandings based on physics as to why they work. And the one that I think is one of the most important things is he talks about what everyone has now been hearing for years. Follow your passion, follow your bliss, act on your highest excitement. The reason why he says that is so critical 
is because the sensation that we experience as passion, as excitement, as joy, as creativity, as love, that sensation is your body's physical translation of the vibrational frequency of your true natural core being. And so anytime you act on something that contains or expresses or reflects that energy of excitement, that energy of passion, that living your dreams kind of idea, your bliss, you are in alignment with who you truly are. The thing, as he explains it, about excitement is that it is a complete kit. And what he means by that is excitement and acting on it is the driving engine of your life. It's the organizing principle of your life. It's the path of least resistance in your life. It's the thread that leads to all other expressions of your excitement. And it's the reflective mirror that points out to you anything within your belief system that might be out of alignment with your excitement so you can identify it integrate it and bring it back into alignment with your excitement. So the formula that he's talking about when he says, yes, act on your highest excitement is fundamentally three parts. Act on your highest excitement to the best of your ability without any insistence or any assumption as to what the outcome of that action ought to be. Following that formula allows you to take advantage of the fact that excitement is a complete kit and that it will bring you synchronistically everything you need at the right place and the right time to allow you to continue to expand your experience of living your excitement. And it will support you however you need to be supported. But you must use the tool in the way the tool was designed to be used in order to get that effect. People are still in many ways practicing the idea of really acting on your excitement and what that means because a lot of times they will forget parts of the formula, parts of the equation, such as letting go of what the outcome needs to be. And thus they are in this state where they are learning what the physics of that idea of following your bliss is all about and allowing their actions to really use that tool in the most precise way possible. But I can guarantee that when you do, because I've experienced it myself over and over again, it does work, but you have to really use it precisely for it to work. But I like that Bashar is capable of explaining why it works as an energy tool. And I think that's probably one of the most important things that he has to uh, say and has delivered to us. Mm. Jim Carrey gave the commencement address here at the university in my town. Uh, I saw that. Did you see that on, on, on YouTube it or something? It is very Bashar-like. Oh, cool. And or Bashar is very Jim Carrey-like. <laughs> I, I think the idea really is that when you tap into that understanding, truth is truth. You get the idea. And just about everything he expressed in that commencement speech was very much in alignment with what Bashar has been talking about for 30 years. Yeah, he talked about how his father wanted to be a comedian, I believe he said. Yes. But he chose a job as an accountant because he could support his family. And then right. he ended up losing his job and the family right. had to struggle. And so Jim Carrey said, well, you know, you can fail at what you don't love, so you might as well take a exactly. shot at what you, what you love. Exactly. So why not? Because at least you'll be doing something you love to do. You'll be experiencing joy and happiness no matter what happens because it is something that's more in alignment with who you are. And really, just by doing that, you haven't failed. In, in some sense, if you want to say there's any failure at all, it's being something that you're not or not being who you really are. So why not take the leap? Because it really isn't an idea of a leap of faith. It's really knowing that this is you and getting the reflection that that's true. And what would you say to the guy that, let's say, you know, has a family, several mm -hmm. kids, and he's working a job he doesn't particularly like, 
but he doesn't have a lot of financial buffer and he has to take care of his right. family and he really wants to be a professional musician, you know, but right. he has, hasn't even begun to start to, to move in that direction. I mean, it could be very irresponsible for him to just drop his yes. job and become a musician. Absolutely. And my response would be the same as Bashar's response. And that is, as long as you're holding on to a belief system that says that your excitement cannot support you as well as what it is you're already doing, even if it's not what you love to do, you have to honor your belief system because it doesn't serve you to jump off a cliff if you don't believe you have a parachute. <laughs> so by all means, you must hold on to whatever belief system you believe you need to hold on to so that you will feel comfortable and safe and supported. But what Bashar is encouraging us to do is at least you have the ability sometime to start taking action on your excitement to the best of your ability without any insistence on what the outcome ought to look like. And the more you are willing to at least take some steps in that direction, the more you are able to prove to yourself eventually that your excitement can support you. And then at whatever rate you are comfortable changing, you can let go of the things you don't prefer to do and only start doing the things that you do prefer to do and see that those things can support you maybe even better than the things that you didn't prefer to do. But it does not do anyone any good to just jump off that cliff if they don't really believe that there is a pillow down there that they're going to land on. So honor your belief system, be honest with yourself, really honest with yourself about whether you really believe your excitement can support you or not. Hold on to the things that will support you until you know for a fact for yourself that what you're really truly all about is also capable of supporting you, as I said, maybe even better than what it is you're doing now that you don't prefer. But it's got to be a balancing act. Yeah, and, and the transition doesn't have to be abrupt, necessarily. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't to have be, to no. be. Absolutely not. And you might actually suck as a musician and just you know, have, have delusions <laughs> of grandeur, you know? And, and exactly. <laughs> well, that's, that's where the honesty comes in, because, and that's why you need to drop the expectation about what you think is going to happen, because sometimes the things that excite you don't necessarily excite you because the thing itself has to come to fruition. Sometimes you're lured by your excitement simply because you need to move in that direction and that's the only carrot that would get you moving. Yeah, maybe something else will unfold. Something else will unfold and it may look absolutely nothing like the thing that initially lured you in that direction. That's why it's important to be very open about what the end result really needs to be because the physical mind doesn't really have the capacity to know how something actually needs to happen. Only the higher mind has that ability. But the physical mind is designed to experience what's happening now in the present. And if you're open to the idea that the higher mind will bring you exactly what you need in some way, shape or form, even if it looks nothing like you expected it to look, if you go along with that and align with that, you will see that whatever comes does actually serve you and does actually get you where you need to go even though it might be in a completely unexpected route. But that's the surprise of life, is not to be so rigid that you think you have all the answers about how you're going to get somewhere and let life show you and let your higher mind show you the truly unexpected and surprising route that you actually will take. Look at myself for an example. If somebody had told me 31 years ago I was going to wind up being a channel and going all around the world and channeling for thousands of people, something that presents itself as an extraterrestrial entity, I would have said they're completely out of their mind. So, but just by following my excitement with no assumption how things were going to turn out, I've had a pretty unusual life and it's brought me some pretty extraordinary experiences that I 
wouldn't necessarily have had any other way. So you have to really leave yourself open for those surprises because that's the joy of life. That's the delight in life is to find something about yourself that you didn't even think was possible can actually happen. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And in my own case, I very often I've wanted and expected and pushed to have things happen a particular way and it's not working out. And then what actually ends up happening is far better than what exactly. I was trying for. Exactly. It, yeah. Your higher point. mind knows what's really best for you and what will really light you up. And when the physical mind insists that it knows better, very often it falls quite short of what your higher mind could actually bring you that could be many times, many times more enjoyable than what you thought you could ever attract. Someone defined humility as not insisting that things happen any particular way. Yeah. yeah. There's a great vo vo verse from the Bhagavad Gita too. It says, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. Live, right. not, live not for the fruits of action, nor attach yourself to inaction. Exactly. It's exactly what Bashar says. It says, when you act on the thing that excites you, you have to act on that thing for its own sake. Mm -hmm. Not because of what you think it's connected to, not because of where you think it'll lead, not because of what you think it will get you. Because very often, doing what excites you will take you down a very different path. But that path will always be truly the path that is in most alignment with who you are. And it will allow you to experience the most joy in your life. Mm -hmm. Here's a, a note that I wrote down when I was listening to one of your things. It was... Uh... Everything is God experiencing itself as everything. Mm -hmm. Want to comment on that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's uh, very similar, again, to what Bashara said. It's like we're made of God. We're made of all that is. There is nothing else but all that is. And you can say from a certain perspective that we are all the ways that God has of experiencing itself in all the ways that it can, all the different perspectives, we're all the different points of view all the different kinds of experiences that creation can have of itself. It doesn't take away from what we are as individual autonomous beings, but simultaneously we are all the different perspectives that creation has of itself. So I would agree with the statement. Mm. Here's another one. Aligning with the vibration of who you actually are. Let me ask, tag a question onto that. Would you say that each of us, all seven billion of us, ultimately, fundamentally, we're all the same person. We, we just referred to that when we were talking about God, but uh, we're all the same thing. But in terms of our individuality, we, would you say that there's a core, unique quality or entity or, or seed of what, of, of what we actually are? And, and we're all aligned or misaligned to varying degrees with that. And that right. life is really all about getting more aligned with that, with that yes. unique expression. Yes. In addition to the universal consciousness, it's, it's also a sort of unique dharma or individual channel of flow to one's yes. life, that one's the, the Tao for one's own life that needs to be attuned to. Yes. I mean, that's the point of having the experience. It's the theme that you're exploring is rediscovering yourself from a different point of view. That's, in a sense, why we forget who we are. Because if we don't forget who we are, we can't remember who we are from another point of view. We can't rediscover ourselves in a unique way if we retain all the knowledge of what we are. So we limit ourselves on purpose, in a sense, in order to have a unique experience of rediscovering ourselves in a new way. And that's what adds to the expansion of creation, is mm -hmm. that new perspective of ourselves, that new discovery of who and what we truly are. Kind of a cosmic game of hide-and-seek. Yeah, kind of, but we're just playing it with ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the people listening to this show usually listen, 
focused on such concepts and terms and, and uh, as enlightenment, liberation, self-realization, God-realization. That's their whole orientation. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't usually think too much about UFOs or en fine. entities from the future and all that. But sure. um, how does Bashar's teaching segue with that, that whole... Well, I mean, his teachings are all about enlightenment. His teachings are all about understanding and knowing the self, the true being, mm -hmm. and knowing that you are always connected to source, always connected to all that is, and that what you're experiencing is just a self-created experience to rediscover yourself from a new point of view. To me, that is enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So his teachings are very much in alignment with that. And you, of all people, should have realized the self more so even than people to whom you speak, since you're like, Maybe. You, you live and breathe the shark. So, <laughs> I, I mean, do. So what is your experience of in, in terms of that, that kind of thing? Self-realization, enlightenment, God-realization? Well, it's, it's definitely changed my life profoundly. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a very, very different person today than if you knew me, you know, 35, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. I feel much more that I am the creator of my reality. I feel much more transparent. Um, I feel much more in tune with existence itself. I see the structure more transparently every day, the underlying structure of existence itself, and things become kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, they become kind of obvious. It's sort of as Bashar said one time, it's like, well, if you're holding a red rose and somebody asks you what color the rose is, you say red. Well, is that an opinion? No, it's an observation. So many of the things that people still look at as opinions or theories, from Bashar's perspective, the information he's delivering, it's not an opinion, it's actually an observation because he can see the underlying structure of existence. Mm -hmm. And that's rubbed off on me more and more and more every day. So certainly I feel that life is more joyful, less effort is expended, things happen much more synchronistically, much more magically, if you want to use that word. Sometimes the synchronicities that happen are absolutely ridiculous, one thing after another. You'll think of one thing and moments later, suddenly you'll get that thing or see that thing or it will just appear with absolutely no idea how it got there. These things are really what the way life, in a sense, can be when you allow it to be that way. And I'm experiencing more and more and more of that every day. Of course, again, I was born here. I was raised with you know similar belief systems to a lot of people, similar limitations. But again, that's my journey is to transform those limitations in ways that are reflective of, of who I chose to be. But I do feel that certainly after 30 years of channeling Bashar, I'm doing that with far more ease and far more joy and far more understanding. Cool. In other words, you feel like you're a work in progress to a certain extent. Of course, you're still, always. Yeah, I, I sort of always. feel like everybody is. No, sure. if, if you're breathing, you're still evolving. Of um, course. <laughs> or even if you're not breathing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, the idea of progress and expansion still goes on even on other levels beyond this one. And each level has its own idea of what that expansion contains, what kind of experiences are relevant to the idea of expansion. But, of course, uh, I think everything is always a work in progress. I don't think that really ever yeah. ends. But I have people who say to me, well, if you're really awakened, then you're settled in some sort of ground state of existence, some, un some unbounded awareness, and you're just not seeking experiences anymore. There, there's just a sort of a, a complete peace and, and folding back into the self from which you have no inclination to emerge, to explore different things here and there. I, well, I, I don't know that I agree, but I'm just throwing yeah. that out, you know. 
Well, I think that what we get caught in is this idea of dichotomy of things are either this or they're that. Mm -hmm. And really, from the perspective that Bashar comes from, things are this and that. And that. Right. So therefore, yes, you can get into a state of perfect peace, perfect bliss, perfect centeredness. And I would say that when you are in that state, you actually start experiencing an unbridled curiosity to explore even more. Because when you're in that state, you become more aware that there is more to explore. And that exploration doesn't have to feel the same as it did from the other level you were just in, but I still don't think it stops. It may not feel like an effort anymore, but I think that's just because you become more aligned with it. It's more representative of who you truly are. And so you don't feel the resistance to it anymore. So there's not as much difference between you and what you're exploring. But I don't think you stop exploring because I think becoming is also the essence of being. Mm. I think it's one of the same things. One I think the there's same. actually a Zen saying, which is always being, always becoming. And That uh, is the same thing. It's yeah. this and that. Being your true self is always becoming something more and becoming something more happens more strongly from a state of centered beingness. Very beautifully put. It really, it's inspiring to hear you say that. It, it, it resonates with my orientation anyway. And, uh, and wouldn't you say that established in being, as we've been explaining, further explanation doesn't imply that you're, you're sort of lacking in fulfillment and you need, no. you need this, that, and the other thing in order to complete no. yourself. It's more that from a state of completion, there is plenty of icing to you know, add, add to the cake, plenty of interesting things yet to understand. And yet, Sure, because yeah. you could, in a sense, I'll just use the word you used, completion. In a sense, you will never be complete, but you can be complete in the idea you are at that moment. Mm. And in other words, right now, you are the absolute perfect version of whatever you are at this moment. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you won't become something else. And in that moment, you'll be the absolute perfect version of whatever that is. That doesn't mean you won't become something else. So one does not contradict the other. One doesn't exclude the other. You can be absolutely centered and absolutely perfect for whatever you are at this moment of experiencing yourself and has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that you can become something else that will be equally perfect for what it is in the next moment. Yeah. And that way of putting it has an individual connotation, but to put it slightly differently, you are the absolute. You know, you are the ground yes. state of, of the universe, yes. uh, but you are also an individual expression. And right. that, that individual expression has certain capabilities and certain yes. proclivities and inclinations. And, Absolutely. And th those, can, those can be yeah. enjoyed and exercised. Because that's, that's the point of the individual perspective. So it's like, yes, every individual being is all that is experiencing itself as a part mm -hmm. of all that is. It's one and the same, but it's two different perspectives on the spectrum. Yeah. Okay. Good. Did that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Here's another one. Bashar was talking about parallel realities during one of his talks, and you and I have talked about it during this sure. interview. Is there a, a Hiroshima on which the bomb didn't drop? I mean, of are, course. Are, really? Anything you can imagine hmm. somewhere, somehow, is playing out. Now, whether it's in the same kind of reality as ours, mm -hmm. who's to say? But Bashar has basically said you can't imagine non existence. So anything that comes into your imagination is part of creation in some form or expression. So I would say that the example you just gave is probably 
got a higher degree of probability of being more literal in the sense of another physical parallel reality because it's so similar to the one we're experiencing. But sure, I mean, you know, science fiction has explored this idea for a long time where you've got things that happen in one reality can have a completely different history in another parallel reality mm -hmm. and still seem to be a very similar kind of, of Earth. So, yeah, absolutely. There are parallel realities where that didn't happen, parallel realities where the Nazis won World War II, parallel realities where John Kennedy is still alive, and all of the above, hmm. because there is an infinite number of those experiences. So, sure. Seems like they would diverge quite dramatically over time if, the, if certain things didn't happen, you know? Yeah, right, exactly. So that's, that's the whole point of having an infinite you know, creation is you can experience every single possible variation that there is to experience, and it is being experienced by some aspect of all that is, and just as real to them as we feel we are real. Okay, here's another one sent in by somebody. Bashar talked about that time and space in our reality is created frame by frame. And I think he, this is a, this, I know this guy, he's a friend of ours uh, who has computer expertise, and he said that seems like it would take an unbelievably huge amount of computing power, processing power, especially at very high frame rates. <laughs> well, yes, but <laughs> we are that powerful. Creation is that powerful. But at the same time, it's also exceedingly economical. In essence, again, this is a case of this, not this or that, but this and that. Yes, the idea that there are billions of frames per second that are creating the illusion of our movement and our physical reality and that time and space are side effects of our consciousness shifting through those billions of frames per second like a projector light projecting through different frames on a film strip to project an illusion of movement on a screen you could say yes that's one way to look at how the idea of physical reality is created at the same time no pun intended there is only one moment in existence. Everything is always now, but it's the same moment from a different perspective. So in a sense, it's this, and it's also that. So the fact that there's only one moment means there doesn't have to be an incredible amount of computing power because there really is only a single moment being looked at from a number of different perspectives at a very high frame rate. But the frame rate is a perspective of a particular reality so it creates the illusion of the need for a lot of computing power which may not actually really be necessary but you're looking at it from two different perspectives so you're using the terminology and the language of two different perspectives it's true to say there's a high degree of frame rate and a high degree of computing power from this perspective but from the other perspective where there's only a single moment in existence no computing power is needed so it's just kind of again on that sliding scale of how you want to look at the idea determines the terminology and the process that you believe is necessary to understand that perspective if that makes sense hmm. um, but yes Looking at it linearly, Bashar has said, time is a side effect of our consciousness shifting through billions of parallel reality frames per second, and that's what creates the illusion of time, space, movement, and change. Mm. In fact, everything is just all happening at once, is all just a one big frozen moment uh, in which everything exists holographically, but we are capable of creating an experience of looking at it from different perspectives in a linear sequence, but that's just an illusionary perspective. Huh. So we're like movie projectors, which take the film that's going yes. many frames through and turn it into an intelligible 
yes. movie. Yes. Yeah. If you, but all the frames exist at the same time, as the projectionist knows. So using the, the frame or the movie metaphor, you know, with a, with a movie film, you, in fact, I watched a thing on CNN the other night about the Kennedy assassination, and they took the Zapruder film, and you could right. see frame by frame, frame. by frame right. what was happening. So right. if you take a single frame of this billions of frames of second that you say is the nature of our reality, right. this might be, I don't know if this is a meaningful question, but what would, what would that frame consist of? It would consist of a potential that has no experience and is timeless. There is no experience, no change, no variation in that. It's a frozen snapshot. I mean, is it like, you know, trillions of atoms in my fingertip, all with their electrons just poised at a certain point, and then the next frame is the atoms have shifted, uh, the, the electrons have shifted slightly to the next point? Or? You, can, you can look at it from an animation point of view and say that is true as well. At the same time, you have to also realize that the atoms you're talking about are also frames because there really aren't different atoms it's all one thing expressing itself as different atoms mm. so it depends on the perspective you're looking at it from as to whether it looks like millions of different atoms or whether it just looks like one concept of potentiality it's really just about perspective and you can frame it you can describe it with any kind of terminology you want as long as you understand that that terminology is just where you are on the sliding scale of everything exists now to there's an infinite num you know an infinite experience of time and space it's just different perspectives of the same thing hmm. so yes you can describe it the way you described it and that's perfectly valid from a point of view it doesn't discount any other way of describing it on that timeline one other thing to throw into the mix here uh, perhaps you can comment on it is that you know physicists tell us that we shouldn't stop at atoms in our analysis of, of, right. of the universe. If we keep going deeper, you know, we get down to subatomic particles. We get more and more to the point where there is nothing of any material nature. Right. And you know, we've, if string theory is correct, we eventually get down to these vibrating strings, which are just sort of potentialities with no physical uh, right. components whatsoever. And that's really what the universe is: is this non-physical field of potentiality, which or, appear, appears physical through the. Or, yeah, or even something more simple than that. Yeah. Um, one of the things Bashar has talked about from his perspective, if you want to say it's a simpler version than that, it's what he calls the prime radiant. Mm -hmm. That's how it translates into our language. And basically he's saying, all right, he still, he still knows he needs to, for the purpose of the conversation, talk about this as if it is either a wave or a particle. So he's clear about the fact that he's simply using analogous terms. But what he's describing is, is a thought experiment. And basically he's saying, imagine this. This isn't necessarily absolutely representative of, of what the reality is, but it's an analogy that can help us. So he's saying, if you imagine that there is only a single particle in an infinite void of emptiness, and there's nothing else in that void, just that single particle, well, there are no laws of physics here. The particle is not beholden to do anything because it's just hanging in an infinite void and there are no limitations on it. So if there are no limitations on it, that particle could actually move at infinite speed. There's no speed of light law going on here. So if a particle can move at infinite speed, that means it can actually be everywhere at once in that infinite void. And that would create the illusion 
by being so fast that it can actually appear everywhere, it would create the illusion that there are a number of different particles when in fact it's actually all the same particle appearing next to itself over and over again so quickly that you can't tell it's the same single particle. Bashar is basically saying that's a better analogy and it actually is a physical analogy of how we actually are all one. Because he's basically saying, if you want to even think about it as a particle, you're actually all made out of the same one particle. Not the same kind of particle, but literally the same one particle in the ultimate time-sharing framework where every single particle in me is literally the same particle you are made of. So that's the way they choose to look at it as an analogy in the physics context, if the, in the quantum context, if you will. I've actually heard physicists, as I understood them, uh, say that very same thing, too. So it's not like an unheard of notion. Right. I know you've talked about this in other Bashar's sessions, mm. um, but you know, we, we introduced this interview talking about the fact that you saw some spaceships. And there are people who say, oh, that wouldn't be possible because it's you know, so many light years to, and, yeah, yeah. and how, how could they get here and, and all that business. So uh, maybe just yeah. uh, dispel that. Yeah, I think that's, that's really kind of an idea that's on its way out at this point. Uh, I mean, I think there are even now physicists who are coming up with an understanding and formulas how there are ways around that idea. There are ways of contracting space, warping space, and so on that don't violate the speed of light. They just get around it because space itself can actually expand at any rate it wants to. It's not subject to the speed of light because light exists within that space. But in a sense, the idea of space-time is above and beyond that. So it really has no limitation on it in terms of how fast it can expand. I think there are civilizations that have learned this trick. And although Bashar, in describing how their spaceships get here from another dimension or travel light years in the blink of an eye, has actually expressed a very unique and very different kind of an understanding about how that works. He's basically saying that we think of an object as existing in a location. His perspective is that location is actually one of the variables of the object. So in other words, if you have an object here and then it moves to here, this represents two completely different, let's say, vibrational equations. They may be very subtly different, but they're different. If you can isolate the locational XYZ variable in the object here and impose on it somehow the locational variable of here, then the object has to stop existing here and just instantaneously start existing here without actually having traveled in between. That's how their spaceships work. So if they're in one location in their solar system and they simply impose upon the ship and everyone in it an overwhelming energy frequency that is representative of the locational variable in the equation of our solar system, their ship just pops out of existence in their system and pops into existence in ours. They haven't violated the speed of light because they actually haven't traveled in normal space-time. They've just redefined the locational variable because, again, if everything actually exists all at once, then that means it exists potentially everywhere 
at once. So what they're doing is they're taking advantage of redefining that variable to stop existing here and just start existing here. That's how their ships travel. And again, I think a lot of physicists on our planet are beginning to get the idea that you can't get there from here or you can't get here from there is a very outmoded idea. And we're actually learning now, even in our own science, that that is possible and how to do that. How do they, let's say they're 300 light years away, how do they know how to fine tune the locational variable so precisely that they don't accidentally end up manifesting in the middle of the sun or something like that? <laughs> well, the basic idea is practice. They've, they've <laughs> practice had can a, be rather disastrous. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they actually have had a long time to get used to this idea, like any technology. Bashar has actually, at, at one point, I actually remember, he actually did talk about the fact that in the very beginning when they were learning this technology, they did lose people. Yeah, like our airplanes when, the, you know, the, exactly. the Wright brothers, the early days, a lot of airplanes crashed. Yeah, exactly. So they have had to have their tests and perfect this technology for themselves, but they've also had thousands of years to do that. Mm -hmm. So at this point, you know, it's not impossible that they might still go astray now and then, but I think they probably reduced that probability to a very small fraction of a percentage at this time. They understand how to chart the universe as a series of vibrational equations. And so basically now I think it's just, it's probably relatively formulaic for them to do this. So if they wanted to chart a particular galaxy, which they hadn't visited yet, they'd have a way of charting that remotely before actually teleporting themselves to it. Yeah, they could extrapolate from the map they already have as to what the likely frequencies are to be over there, at least to enough of a degree that they can probably get close and then perhaps refine it from that point forward. Hmm. A friend uh, overheard me yesterday at the grocery store talking about the fact that I was going to interview you, and he got very excited <laughs> and uh, sent in a question here that's related to the topic we're talking about, which is going to seem pretty far out to some people, but whatever. Okay. Take it or leave it. <laughs> uh, uh, he said... I am already teleporting in my sports car. I am wondering if there is a sim. In other words, he says he can yes. jump 40 or 50 miles. And I say, you sure you're not just spacing out? Yeah. But he said, um, I'm wondering if there is a similarity in teleporting in a spaceship as the Yaye do, whoever yeah, yeah. they are. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's another civilization Bashar has talked about. But yes, I would actually say, yes, it's identical. If that is actually happening, it's identical. And in fact, Again, based on what we were talking about before, it's actually what we're doing all the time when we even experience any movement at all. Because in a sense, we're jumping from one frame to another. There's no intervening traveling. We're just jumping from one frame to another. All that Bashar's people are doing is doing it over a larger number of frames. So you don't have any problem with believing that he actually may be teleporting in his sports car? You know people who actually do that sort of thing? I actually do know people who have done it. It's not something that happens regularly. Mm -hmm. I've experienced it in my life once. I know someone else who did experience it more than once. They were, let's see, how can I describe what happened to them? They were in an apartment with a roommate. They were standing in the bathroom brushing their hair in the mirror was a small apartment. There is no way to get from the bathroom to the kitchen without going through the living room. Mm -hmm. The roommate was in the kitchen, walked into the living room and into the bathroom to talk to her roommate. When she got to the bathroom, the roommate wasn't there. The roommate 
suddenly realized that they were standing in front of the fridge in the kitchen with the hairbrush in her hand, <laughs> staring at the fridge, wondering how she got into the kitchen. And the roommate came back into the kitchen and said, how the hell did you get past me into the kitchen? And she said, I don't know. Yeah. So I know that's one strong example where there was corroboration that the person actually popped from the bathroom to the kitchen with no intervening traveling. Hmm. I experienced this once in my life where I was with a friend up near San Francisco and they were supposed to meet me, pick me up, and we were going to lunch in a nearby small town. Now, neither of us knew anything about this area. I'd never been here before. She had never been there before. So when she came to the hotel and picked me up, we went to the front desk and said, how do we get to this town? The person at the front desk gave us very simple, very direct instructions how to get to this town to go have lunch. We followed the directions to a T, got to the town, had lunch. On the way back, we reversed the directions and suddenly realized we were several miles north of where we should be, and it didn't make any sense. So we turned around, got back on, went back to the hotel, and said, now, wait a minute, how did that happen? So we followed the directions again to retrace our steps to see what had happened. And we realized that the person at the front desk had given us the wrong directions. There was absolutely no way we could have actually followed those directions and gotten to that town, but we did. Hmm. So in that instance, we knew by proving it to ourselves that somehow we had just believed her directions so strongly that it didn't matter that they were wrong. We still got where we needed to be. And the directions were just too simple to have made a mistake. It was literally just one off ramp away. So. I had the experience myself of that whole slippage of space and time that is possible when you're in the proper altered state. I'm sure that, um, you know, cynics, as we defined them in the beginning, would feel that there were a lot of alternative explanations for what you just described. But of I, course, I would but encourage, that's why, yeah, skeptics that's should why keep an we open mind. Back, but that's why we, I mean, we were skeptical because yeah. we couldn't believe that that had actually happened. That's why we actually followed the directions again. But we absolutely proved to ourselves there was simply no way we could have gotten to the town by actually following her directions now that we knew the layout of the land. Mm. It was only because we had no clue whether her directions were right or wrong that we actually wound up getting to the town following her directions. But her directions were wrong, and it was absolutely too simple to have made a mistake. This fellow further asks, uh, I'm wondering if the ability to teleport in a car opens an energy in the collective consciousness of the planet that will allow humanity to accept teleporting of the Yaya here in, the, in their spaceships. Yes, because anytime anyone exhibits any example that stretches the boundaries of what we think is possible, I think that adds something to the collective energy that makes it more possible for other people. I think it's, this is what people generally refer to as the hundredth monkey syndrome. Right. So there is a collective consciousness, I believe. And when you do something in that, when you do break a barrier, I do think you actually kind of set up a, a sort of a, you know, let's just say energetic lubricant that makes it easier for people to slide along that same path again and again and again. Yeah. Another question he has, uh, do you have any more information about teleportation that you have not put in your previous mm -hmm. YouTube posts? Anything new? Um, no, it's really just about state of being. It's really about letting go of preconceptions. It's really about expanding your understanding that you actually are already, in a sense, everywhere at once, and just sort of re-identifying your perspective from another point of view.
Okay. So is Bashar an optimist? I know uh, <laughs> in terms, I mean, there are a lot of dire situations on the planet right now, and it almost seems to be heating up, you know, and getting yeah. more and more dire. And the heating up literally with the global warming thing, and also, sure. I mean, geez, what's going on in Syria and Iraq right now, and all yes. kinds of things seem to be... Uh, <clears throat> I know, mean, he's not... You say he's an optimist. Yes, I could say he's an optimist because he always is looking at something from how can this situation, regardless of how it looks, deliver a positive outcome for you, a positive point of view, a positive experience. He will always look at it from a positive point of view. At the same time, that doesn't mean he's in denial about recognizing that many of these situations have been created from a negative point of view. But just because he observes that we may have created things from a negative perspective doesn't mean we still can't reverse them and turn it around and get a positive result from this. So he's encouraging us to redefine these things in a positive way. For example, he understands that there's a lot of struggle and strife and war and conflict and so on. But he says, here's another way to look at it. You're accelerating these things on your planet. You're bringing all this stuff more and more and more and more out into the open so that you can decide that you don't prefer this anymore. You're giving yourself more examples of negativity to make yourself so sick and tired of it that you finally start choosing only positivity. So from his perspective, that's a positive way to look at the negativity we've created is we're getting it all out on the table. We're now able to see all in front of us and have a dialogue between all of us. Is this really the direction we wanna go in? Is this what we prefer? Yes or no? And if it's no, how can we do something about it? How can we really change this? How can we make a difference in a positive direction? So he's basically saying that all the negativity coming up, bubbling up to the surface now, is us getting all our fears on the table, really examining our fears, and finally deciding to let those fears go so we can actually have a reality like we say we prefer to have. So he's looking at it as an opportunity to be more in control, more responsible, more self-empowered, and make decisions that are more in alignment with who we really prefer to be. Okay. This question is related to what you just said, and perhaps we'll bring out another flavor of it. Do you concur with, does Bashar concur with the notion that the planet as a, as a conscious entity, Gaia, is waking up and all the beings on it are waking up and that it's kind of like when a dog wakes up and, and starts scratching its fleas and it begins to get a little turbulent for the fleas. You know, things were kind of peaceful when the dog was asleep. But yes. now, now things are kind of beginning to really shake. And, sure, uh, we're shaking be, ourselves away. Yeah, there's certain things which really don't belong on the planet which need to be somehow removed or purged. Mm -hmm. And the purging process is not necessarily going to be smooth for those who are committed to those things. Uh, yes. Gonna, it might seem um, like things are really getting crazy, but it's actually something good happening if you zoom out yeah. to this big enough picture. Yes. And another way, to, again, is to go back to the idea of the infinite parallel versions of Earth, because Bashar is basically saying, it's not that you're actually changing the world you're on, it's that you're changing yourself and shifting to a parallel version of Earth that is already more reflective of the change you made within yourself. Ah. So the people that are staying, let's say, locked into the idea of resistance and negativity are simply shifting to versions of Earth that are more and more reflective of struggle, strife, and negativity and may experience disastrous transformations. People that are shifting in a positive way are more in alignment with themselves, are going to experience themselves shifting to versions of Earth that are already more reflective of that idea. And so the people ultimately who are no longer vibrationally compatible with being in alignment with yourself may start to disappear from our lives and vice versa.
over mm. time as we shift to more and more and more diverse versions of the earth that already exist. It's more like that rather than changing the world you're on because the world, that version of earth will always exist because everything always exists. It's just a matter of what neighborhood do you want to live in? What earth do you want to live on? And changing yourself so that you shift to a reality that's more representative of that change within you. Yeah, I can see two interpretations of what you just said. One is that, you know, one might be feeling, you know, undergoing a, a spiritual awakening, upwelling of, you know, more bliss, consciousness and all that. Right. And might be feeling, wow, you know, life is really getting good for me. And yet at the same time, all hell could be breaking loose in various places sure. around the world. The economies can be collapsing and, and so on. But f from one's own perspective, life is really getting quite heavenly. That's one yes. interpretation. Yes. Another is that as we finish these lifetimes in these bodies, are you saying that perhaps people who are really attached to one version of Earth will take rebirth in an, a version of Earth that's more in tune with their proclivities, whereas those who are going the other way will take birth in a different version, much more positive, heavenly version. Yes. Okay. And everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like any number of varieties that one can choose to dwell on according to which way you want to steer the boat. Infinite number of experiences on an infinite number of realities. It's really what it comes down to. It's cool. choose, choose what works for you. Do you yourself do some kind of spiritual practice other than channeling Bashar? No, not so much because the channeling process, the experience of being in that altered state for me is extremely intense and extremely capable of delivering a lot of information, a lot of perspectives, a lot of concepts. And I find that that's really what works for me. Now, I guess you could say that in making films, that's my way of expressing my excitement. That's my way of putting myself as myself into that state of acting on my bliss and then expressing what Bashar is talking about in my reality. So I suppose you could say filmmaking is my other way of, of being in the state of being where I'm expressing these things in my life as the person that I am. Does Bashar uh, offer practices that other people can do on a daily basis to... He does, he yeah. does, but he refers to all such practices as permission slips. Basically what he's saying is all tools, all techniques, all rituals, all formats, and all objects are basically permission slips that we're using. We're attracting ourselves to these tools, these techniques, these rituals, because they happen to be in alignment with the belief system we have. And for some reason in our belief system, we believe we need to use this tool to give ourselves permission to be more of who we are. It's not that the permission slip itself, the ritual, the practice, the object is really doing it. We're doing it. But for some reason, our belief system says we need this thing in order to give ourselves permission to be more of who we are. And that's fine. But basically what that means is any permission slip can work. They're all valid. If you think that religion is your permission slip, that's fine. If you think tarot cards is your permission slip, that's fine. If you think crystals is your permission slip, that's fine. If you think nothing is your permission slip, that's fine but they're all permission slips because they're all just representative of what your belief system is in alignment with that will allow you to relax a limitation and give yourself permission to be more of who you are. So mm -hmm. anything will work. And if you're attracted to it, 
you're attracted to it for a reason. It's probably indicative of where you are in your belief system and what ritual will work best for you as a permission slip at that moment. That's why you're attracted to it. And if you change your mind tomorrow and are attracted to something else, that's because you've changed and now you're attracted to a different permission slip. But ultimately, the idea is to understand that they are just permission slips and you don't necessarily need any of them to just give yourself permission to be more of who you are. It can just be a decision. That can be a sufficient permission slip. Yeah. So in a way, that's subtly dismissive of the value of practices and techniques. But at the same time, it sort of also endorses them if you feel yes. attracted to him. He's not saying, well, go ahead and do it if you feel attracted, but you're really just, you don't need it. No, no, no. No, he's, he's just... not dismissing it. He's not dismissing it because he's valuing the belief system that believes that that is what will work, that that's the process. Because again, the experience and the process is the point. So it's not dismissive. It's just saying it's okay to use those things because that's the process you've decided that you require to have this experience of yourself. And that's absolutely valid. He's just looking also at the, simultaneously at the underlying mechanism that creates that experience. So he's revealing the simplicity of the mechanism without invalidating the experience and at the same time simply saying that when you achieve a higher level of understanding, you realize as part of your valid process that you don't necessarily need that permission slip anymore in the same way that as an adult, you don't need the same kind of things you needed as a kid, but that doesn't invalidate the fact that you needed them as a kid. It doesn't dismiss them. It's what got you where you are to the point where you realize you don't need those things anymore. Yeah, and if you're crossing a river in a boat, you kind of need the boat when you're in the middle of the river. Exactly. But when you, when you get to the other shore, you don't. The boat is the boat anymore. Yeah, you right. don't need it. In fact, if you keep clinging to the boat, you're kind of like not able it, to enjoy it, the shore, right? <laughs> yeah. So it, it's not a dismissive thing. It's simply right place, right time. This is what you need now, and then you get to a point where you don't need that anymore because this is how it works. Yeah. Okay, that's good. So, we've been going on for almost two hours. This is great. I really appreciate this discussion. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that you feel is important that I haven't thought to ask you um, that, you know, you want people to hear? You know, the idea of what I do, like I said, on my own as a filmmaker, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, we're in the middle now of doing a Bashar documentary. My production company, Zia Films, has done another film called Dearly Departed, which is an exploration of the idea of the afterlife. So, you know, this is what excites me. It's what gives me joy. It's me acting on my bliss to the best of my ability. And as an example, in that sense, I would certainly absolutely encourage at whatever rate you're comfortable with everyone to act on their highest joy because it is exceedingly rewarding. Yes, there are going to be challenges. Yes, absolutely. There are going to be things that might turn you inside out. But if you always know that whatever's happening can be used in a positive way and you always give it a positive reason, from personal experience in making the movies that we've made, I can guarantee you that by staying in that state, you will always get a positive outcome that's many times better than you imagined. It just does always work that way. So in following my own bliss, I can definitely say that Bashar's principles do work when you apply them, and I would encourage everyone to the best of their ability to act on their highest dreams because that's really what you're all about. 
Will these movies be available in theaters, on YouTube, on Netflix? Uh, or? Dearly Departed is now available on Gaim TV and through Fast Spring. They can go to our ziafilms.com website and order Dearly Departed if they're interested in that. Of course, they can also go to bashar.org to order any of the recordings that have been made of Bashar events. We are planning to present the Bashar documentary, which is called First Contact, to film festivals to see if we can actually get a distributor to put it into theaters first before we go to DVD. Mm -hmm. You know, and Zia Films, as its own production company, has many other projects that we're creating and developing that uh, will get out there on TV or in theaters or some way, shape, or form. But yes, they can find out what we've already done on ziafilms.com or bashar.org. And I'll link to all this stuff from your page on batgap.com so okay. people don't Thank have you. to know how to spell it or anything. They can follow <laughs> those links. The, f the friend who was asking me about teleporting in his car was also asking whether you do private sessions. Bashar does private sessions that yes. you can get together with people somehow, over, either yes, in person absolutely. or over Skype or whatever. No, I only do them in person at okay. this point because of the way my schedule is in terms of the film production. But all of that information as to how to set up a private session is just based on availability on my schedule. And that can all be found out through the uh, Bashar.org uh, website. Okay, so they'd come to L.A. or... They wherever, would have to wherever be you're going to be or something. They would have to be in L.A. I actually don't usually have time when, when we go to other nearby cities to do right. private sessions. And because of my production schedule at the moment, we're not actually traveling to cities that are farther away from L.A. Then I can fly up in the morning, do the session, and fly back the same night. Mm -hmm. At this point, film production is keeping me kind of as close to L.A. as possible. But we are doing things in San Francisco. We're doing things in you know, Orange County. We sometimes go as far as perhaps... Um, Arizona. Mm -hmm. So they can again find out our schedule on Bashar.org of where Bashar events will be, but private sessions you need to be in Los Angeles, yes. Do you mind my asking how much the private sessions cost? Private sessions are $300 for an hour for mm -hmm. one, two, or three people. Okay, good. When you do travel places, you obviously have well, they'll get it all on Bashar. If they want to find yes. out your schedule, if you happen to be speaking in New York or something, it's they're all going to find on your schedule. Do you have some kind of newsletter people can sign up to to be notified of things like that? Uh, yes, again, that's all through the Bashar.org website. Okay, good. So we'll, we'll link to all that. Well, thanks. This has been great. This has. It's been fun. Yeah. Let me make a few concluding remarks of a general nature that I always make. I've been speaking with Daryl Anka, who channels Bashar. You know that by now, if you've been watching this. And we'll be linking to all of his things, his films, Bashar.org, anything else that, uh, he wants to have linked to, you'll find it on his page on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. So if you happen to be listening to this uh, in an audio file that somebody sent you or seeing it on YouTube, if you go to batgap.com, you'll find a sort of a mothership of all these interviews that I've been doing. There are about 230 of them so far. There is a place there to sign up to be notified by email every time a new one is posted. There is a discussion group that is set up for each interview, you know, specific to that interview. There is a link to an audio podcast so you can subscribe on iTunes and listen to it on an iPod or some such device. There is a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking if they have the wherewithal. That's the sole means of support for this whole enterprise. Thanks again, uh, Daryl. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on the show and thank you for the work you do so that information like this can get out to people. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Next week I'll be interviewing Richard Lang, who is a protege of Douglas Harding, who had a teaching called The Headless Way. 
And I believe the week after that is Peter Russell, who's a scientist who's written all kinds of great books that I've been a fan of over the years. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next time.